0: So as we come to the last chapter of Romans, we might initially, as I said, find this rather uh, extra, extraneous material, uh, just the writer being polite by way of uh, these closing greetings. Uh, we do this ourselves, do we not? We say, hey, you know, tell so-and-so I said hi. Um, but we do really mean that when we say it, do we not? I mean, we, we want to give greetings to someone through somebody else, so that uh, indeed uh, others are knowing that, that we remember them, that we're thinking about them. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. And uh, the word greet in, his, uh, uh, in this chapter, in its imperative form, uh, occurs some 16 times, if I counted correctly. Uh, and all before the closing words, all the churches of Christ greet you. So, what comes forth from this passage is, once again, an an emphasis, we shouldn't miss this, an emphasis on the church. Um, and, And not just the local church, although that emphasis is certainly here as well, but an emphasis on the wider and the broader church. In other words, here is a very Presbyterian passage, if I can put it that way. Here is a passage that makes it clear that local churches, including the church at Rome, are not just local, but are also part of the whole church, the the full gathering of all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. The question that might uh, come to mind uh, by this passage is, how did Paul know all these people? Um, thus to send greetings to them at the end of his letter. Uh, some majority of scholars seem to agree that Paul uh, ne- had never been to Rome at the time of writing this letter. He he obviously knew that a congregation had been formed in Rome uh, of those who had put their faith in Jesus of, of Nazareth, the Messiah. Uh, and and as it has been pointed out uh, Over the past two sermons in this series, Paul was very concerned about the church at Rome and and concerned for the church itself, but also for his own purposes. Paul was interested in going beyond Rome. Uh, That he ever did is doubtful, although we don't know for sure. But Paul was interested in Rome as, as an outpost, uh, as a stepping stone to go further west uh, into the rest of the known world with the gospel. But to come back to the point, how did Paul know all these people that he greets at the end of his letter? Some would say that this greeting uh, or, or his greetings show that he actually had been to Rome. That's a, uh, I, uh, you know, that's a, that's a decent argument. Um Uh, and and that maybe he had even spent some uh, significant amount of time there already getting to know the people that he now greets. But another explanation is simply this, that Paul had never been to Rome, but that he had come to know these people by way of the reports that he had received regarding the believers in Rome. Even more, some of those whom he greets would seem to have gone to Rome ahead of Paul to serve there, seeking to be a blessing to the church at Rome. It's easy to figure that the church at Rome was, uh, was even kind of a, a prized possession, uh, a significant milestone. Uh, the gospel and the kingdom had, had now gone from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. There were major cities, Uh, In between Jerusalem and Rome, cities like Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and Thessalonica. But Jerusalem was Jerusalem and Rome was Rome. Rome was no small thing but something to be counted. uh, With with the church at Rome being a significant celebration and, and concern for all the churches between Jerusalem and Rome. So the picture that emerges is is the picture of even one church. One church. That's really the, the significance of this closing chapter and the reason not to hear it as extraneous. The church of Christ was growing. The kingdom was coming, advancing throughout the world. We take that for granted, do we not? But all we have to do is consider how, how insignificant and unknown Jerusalem really was in the world at that time. Israel, as a nation, had been, had been wiped off the map by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Medo-Persians, by the Greeks, and now by the Roman Empire. Jerusalem? Oh, you mean that city of legend that used to stand so tall and mighty? but whose walls were pulled down by a single ruler. Who was it again? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I think. Well, even Nebuchadnezzar's name had surely been mostly forgotten. Yet the stump of Jesse had, had sprouted. That tiny mustard seed that Jesus talked about had been planted in Jerusalem, and the kingdom was coming. It was coming was advancing throughout the world. We need to see that. And now from Jerusalem all the way to the great city of Rome. And yet there was no magic about it, uh, and it didn't happen overnight. It certainly came by a miracle from God, a, a work of God, but it came by way of the hard work of the church. The parallel here is, uh, is Israel's, if you recall, Israel's entrance into the promised land. On one hand, if you remember, the land had been promised to them. You will receive it, said God. It, it's, it already belongs to you. And yet, there are these other people living in the land, so now what do we do? Well, they need to be removed. And since it's your land, by my promise, since I have promised it to you, go now, said God, and conquer the land. Can we see that that's where we are? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth has been (coughs) promised to us, and yet we have work to do. And in the same way, Christ had come, his, his saving work had been done, promises from God had been fulfilled and remade, so that Jesus said to His church, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations. So the thing to be gained from this, uh, this closing chapter of Romans, beyond recognizing the advance of the kingdom from Jerusalem to Rome, is to see the significance of service. First of all, the significance of service. By the way, I'm not going to get through all five points. I'll just give you that uh, if you're looking at the outline. uh, We'll be covering the first three points uh, this morning, and the Lord willing, we'll continue on uh, next uh, next, uh, Lord's Day. But the first point, the significance of service. In Romans 16, verse 1, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, uh, a servant of the church, that you may welcome her in the Lord by way or, or in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need. Uh, and, and, uh, or for she has been a patron of many uh, and myself as well. Uh, here we have an example, a glowing example of a person would seem to be coming to the church at Rome. The believers at Rome didn't seem to know her. Paul knew her and uh, apparently knew that she would soon arrive in Rome. Uh, for what purpose, we do not know, uh, but presumably, presumably to be some, some help uh, to, uh, to the believers at Rome. Uh, I'm sure we can understand that in the absence of driver's licenses and, uh, and without the benefit of background checks, uh, this was an important thing for Paul to write at the closing of his letter commending Phoebe to them. And, uh, and shouldn't we hear Paul writing, uh, uh, or, or, or uh, we shouldn't hear Paul writing, uh, well, you know th- this this woman Phoebe is coming, and you know just make sure you, you, you're prepared for her. Instead, Paul, Paul is being very intentional. Uh, this woman would be coming as a major blessing. Paul was convinced of it. She would be coming as a as a major blessing to the church at Rome. And uh, and so he wanted to make sure that she was well received. Surely, Paul learned how important it was to to recognize service in the church and and by and by a person's service especially over time uh, to recognize the character of a a person uh, behind that good service Uh, we don't have the details of phoebe's visit to rome nor do we need those details if we i would say if we needed the details the holy spirit would have given them to us uh, but, but what we need to see is, is, is how valuable it was to the church when someone decides to be a good servant of the church. And in the same way, Paul recognizes two other people, a married couple, it would seem, Prissa and, and Aquila. He writes, uh, Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks in my, uh, for my life. Uh, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles uh, uh, as well. So, So service is one thing. Let's start out with that. Service is one thing, but service at risk of harm is another thing. Here was a couple who clearly loved Christ. Here was a couple who had decided to serve Christ and thus to serve the body of Christ, the church, despite what it might mean, regardless of the consequence that they might bear for indeed serving the church. They risked their necks, writes Paul. You can imagine that uh, if someone risked their neck for you, you would remember that. And, uh, And you would be ready, as Paul was, to commend them, to recommend them, uh, to do and, and to say what you, whatever you can, that the church might treat them, receive them, and, and treat them well uh, with respect. It brings to mind uh, Psalm 133, where uh, David writes, "...behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity." Of course, David goes on to write in in Psalm 133 how this blessing, the the unity of the church, comes from God. uh, That it is like the the precious oil on the head, and and it's the precious oil. In other words, it's it's the official oil. Uh, It's the oil of God, even the Holy Spirit. When brothers dwell together in unity, it comes about when God bestows His anointing. For his blessing. And, and it's a profuse anointing, precious oil on the head, but running down to the face, running down on the beard of Aaron, running down to the collar of his robes. And so it all goes back to Aaron. It it all ties in with the priesthood of Israel by which sacrifice was made to God, by which atoning sacrifice was made. But all this points forward to Christ, who as our eternal and perfect High Priest has made His once-for-all sacrifice at the cross for our sins. So where does unity come from in the church? It comes from God, and it comes through Christ. And what does that unity look like? We see it as brother serves brother and sister serves sister and brother serves sister and sister serves brother within the church. And it goes beyond service in the church. It also includes sacrifice. So the next point is the acknowledgement of sacrifice. And we've already begun this point by way of Paul's reference to Prissa and Aquila risking their necks for Christ and the gospel ministry. There is obviously a sacrifice to be made simply in being willing to suffer. Maybe in the end it didn't cost you your neck, but there is a sacrifice even in being willing to risk your neck. Are we willing to risk our necks for Christ, for the kingdom, for the church? But Paul also greets Mary, who has worked hard for you. So here we see that hard work itself is a sacrifice. You only have so much strength. We all understand that. We all have only so many days to live on this earth. So so are we willing to give whatever strength we have? It's limited. But are we willing to give whatever strength we have? Are we willing to expend what? however many days that we have on this earth to serve the church. Even more, Paul greets Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. It's a a reference that reminds us that Paul was not playing around with religion here. We might say, the Apostle Paul went to prison for doing what he did and for carrying out the ministry that he carried out. And surely we can understand that those who were imprisoned with him were dear to him. Suffering loves company and and uh, nobody wants to suffer but even less does anybody want to suffer alone. Paul suffered willingly. He carried out his ministry of the gospel come what may as we say but there were others who suffered along with him, those who apparently went to prison along with him. And such people, we can understand, such brothers and sisters in Christ were especially dear, especially dear and important to Paul. But even with Paul's reference to those who risked their necks and to those who were his fellow prisoners, we cannot fail, brothers and sisters, we cannot fail. To remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Nor would the Apostle Paul want us to. The point is not to look for examples of sacrifice in the church and, 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 and just follow those. All sacrifice stems from the sacrifice of Christ. The cross of Christ is, is not just the example. It, it is an example, but not just... An example, the cross of Christ, is even the power behind whatever sacrifice we make for the cause of Christ, for the coming of the kingdom. So let the sacrifice of Christ be our example, even our inspiration. But if you think about it, who is going to do that? Well, Christ went to the cross, so we should be willing to suffer too. But does that make sense? In a this-worldly way, it makes sense. But the power of it goes beyond just the example. The power of it goes to the sacrifice itself and to the resurrection of Christ. The one who suffered and died for us also rose again from the dead. And so we have this assurance That even as we serve and suffer, even as we make significant sacrifice, we will have lost nothing. Can we see this? That no matter how much you give away throughout your life, you have lost nothing. Isn't that remarkable? No matter how much you give away throughout your life, you have lost nothing. By the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ for you, you have an endless supply of what you might give to others in your life. Each of us is is likely at some point to huff and puff about how much we are being put upon, how much others are costing us. Well, Jesus didn't do that. And that's the example to follow. But beyond the example to follow is the promise and the reality that what Christ did for us is the very supply, both the source and the supply of the sacrifices that we are called to make as we live, as we live out the Christian life. Next within Paul's greeting is the recognition of conversion. In verse 5 he writes, Greet my beloved Aponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. The striking thing here is is that Paul can can remember this. Uh, On the most basic level, it shows the exceptional memory (laughs) of the Apostle Paul. A couple years ago, I was worshiping in Columbus with our our sister church there, and uh, a a family was there. They were visiting as well, and uh, they came up to me afterwards and uh, said, Hey, um, you baptized one of our children, and here he is. And I was like a deer in the headlights, right? Oh, I don't remember that. Uh, I had to say, but, but what a joyful reunion of sorts, uh, even by way of my poor memory. Uh, I, had, I had been a guest in their church on a, on a certain Lord's Day and had been asked to administer the baptism of this child uh, on that Lord's Day. So what a remarkable thing that Paul remembers this. And of course, this is not to confuse, just to clarify, this is not to confuse baptism with conversion. But, but this is obviously important to Paul, to remember his first convert in Asia. This man whose name is not all that easy. I'm not going to try to say it again. It's not all, e- all that easy to pronounce. But, but surely Paul remembered the first person converted in Asia, not as a notch in his belt, but by way of the blessing that God has sent to Paul By way of this first conversion Uh, the old expression in the church is everyone win one everyone save one guessing you've heard that before so how many people do you know that you have that god has used you to save Uh, maybe you didn't hear them pray the sinner's prayer Uh, maybe you weren't there for their profession of faith But you can look back and see that God used you. That God used you. That Christ was at work through you. I think this is something important to take from this passage. A passage that we might otherwise read as extraneous. Just extra stuff to pass over quickly. But if we slow down and if we think about it, here Paul was aware of one of his first converts. Again, not as a trophy on a shelf, but as a blessing from God. Conversion is indeed a miracle. Conversion is a miracle. This is our reformed conviction, at least I hope it's your conviction, that conversion is a miracle. Sometimes the question gets asked, does God still do miracles today and And one answer, maybe you've heard it, is to say, well, yes, every time a baby is born, God does a miracle. Well, that's not a bad answer. But we ought to be willing to recognize that every time someone is born again, every time someone is brought to faith in Christ, we are witnessing a miracle. If God's word is truth that that sinners are dead in sin, that conversion happens by way of the new birth, that sinners are resurrected and newly created unto faith in Christ, then faith only comes to the heart of a dead sinner who is created unto faith in Christ. Faith only comes to the heart of a dead sinner except by way of a miracle, a gracious work from God No less significant than Jesus healing the sick or casting out demons or making the lame to walk or restoring a a withered hand or even raising Lazarus from the dead. The challenging question is why we don't understand our conversion in that way. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then, then something miraculous has happened to you. And not miraculous in any kind of a general or, or generic sense. God has done something. The God of the Bible has done something to you and for you. and what the God of the Bible of the Bible has done for you has been done for you through Christ. His birth, life, suffering, death and resurrection, all leading to His ascension to heaven and His outpouring of His Spirit, His life, His merit, His salvation. Only by the work of Christ for the sending of His Spirit are you a believer in Christ, thus to have salvation by the faith that has been given to you. And beyond our own conversion... We must see and understand every conversion in the same way. It's a miracle of God. And someone might try to you know, get us to, to question all this by saying, Oh, well, uh, you're, you're just a Christian because you are following the faith of your parents. The child of a Buddhist becomes a Buddhist. The child of a Muslim becomes a Muslim. The child of a Christian becomes a Christian. But if we know the truth of God's Word... If we have been convinced of the truth of Christ, then will we not say, well, yes, absolutely, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians, but that's exactly how God saved me, by giving me to be born into a Christian family. God was at work from the beginning, from my earliest days, As the psalmist says, from my mother's breast. It was only a matter of time before Christ was born, lived, suffered, died, rose again, ascended, and sent His Spirit to me. It was only a matter of time that salvation would come by the mind and by the plan of God into my life. And even from all eternity, that it might become mine well as I mentioned, Paul has more greetings, but as I was preparing this sermon, I ran out of time, <laughs> and we do have the Lord's Supper to get to so uh, these are important greetings, so let's uh, let's keep the rest for next time, the Lord willing for this morning here's the review: service, sacrifice, and conversion service, sacrifice. And conversion. Let us serve one another. Let us serve one another as we serve the one who has served us, the one who went to the cross for us. And how can we serve the one who is now in heaven? How, how can you serve Christ? He's not, he's not here in the flesh, but he's here in the spirit and he's here by his church. And so we can serve Christ by serving the church, and let us even serve by way of sacrifice. And if the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the example, and even the power behind our sacrifice, then let us be ready to lay down our lives for Christ. And if we are ready to lay down our lives for Christ, then let every lesser sacrifice be freely offered to our Lord. And finally, for this time, let us recognize that conversion, conversion is a miracle, our, our conversion, and that of our brother or sister in the Lord. This is the work of God. This is a miracle of God. And let us give thanks to God, both for His work to save us, as well as to save those who serve and sacrifice alongside of us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that even in these closing verses, there is a great message for us. We can see the church taking shape in such a profound way from from a promise to a commission to the coming of a kingdom. We can see it even in the pages of Scripture. And we can see it throughout church history, and we can see it yet today, and we pray that you would... Give us uh, such courage and confidence that uh, we would continue this work. Not because our work accomplishes it, but because it has been accomplished and we get to be the ones who serve to play it out, to see it applied and to see the kingdom come. So give us this perspective and give us, uh, give us the willingness to serve to sacrifice, and to recognize Your work in all that we are and in all that we do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.